with Custodians of the Planet. I'm Deniz Yıldız. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to planetary challenges and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. Have you ever thought about the link between gay rights, black rights, women rights or animal rights? Justice and equality is a huge topic and surrounded by all isms, including racism, sexism, ableism, and speciesism. Although this is in 2020, statistics show that African Americans are nearly three times more likely than whites to be killed by police. In Australia, there has been 400 Aboriginal deaths in custody since 1991. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders make up about 2% of the total Australian population, but 28% of the adult prison population. Wherever you reside in the world, access to employment, housing, healthcare, education and wealth is not equal. There are many things that require change in order to live in a harmonious world. There are also things that need to change in the human psyche. According to studies, prejudice and discriminative behavior relies on similar psychological processes and motivations. Today we will talk about the root cause of these kind of behaviors that are not only hurting fellow humans, but our planet too. I would like to dedicate this episode to George Floyd and David Dungay. Both of these men, one African American, one Aboriginal, were killed by police. Their last words being, I can't breathe. Underpinning this police brutality is systemic racism. What I mean by systemic racism is that every established system we can think of is entrenched with prejudicial attitudes and racial discrimination. To talk about the psychological constructs underlying discriminative behaviors, Dr. Jim Everett joins us. Jim is a social and moral psychologist at the University of Kent. He specializes in moral judgment, perceptions of moral character, and parochial altruism. Jim, it's so good to have you on the show. Welcome to Custodians of the Planet. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You conducted a very interesting study on speciesism. For those who are not quite familiar with this topic, can you tell what speciesism is? Can you briefly tell us about the study? Yeah, so speciesism is this term that was introduced and popularized in the 1970s by Richard Ryder um, at Oxford at the time, but really taken up by Peter Singer, um, an Australian, in his book Animal Liberation and so on. And the idea is that speciesism refers to the assignment of different moral status based solely on an individual's species membership. So the idea is that humans are intrinsically worth more than non-human animals and that that's not because they're more intelligent or more sentient or they have higher order complex um, abilities, but that the humans are worth more just because 
they're humans. And this term was introduced specifically to draw a parallel with other forms of unjustified discrimination, such as racism and sexism. The idea was that just as it's morally wrong to treat a black person and a white person differently on the basis of their race, it's morally wrong to treat humans and non-human animals differently purely on the basis of their species membership. There's been, I would say, a, a broadening of interest in this in the last maybe 10 years or so in psychology. A lot of it is being done by one of my colleagues, my new colleagues here at the University of Kent, um, Dr. Christoph Dontz, and uh, many other people, uh, Lucius Caviola, um, Gordon Hodson, Catherine Amiot, Brock Bastian. There's a lot of people that have really started to work on this in the last 10 years. One of the papers which started my contribution to this was a paper in which we sought to define this concept in psychology. It had been, speciesism was a word that had occasionally been used in psychology studies, but there was no way to measure it. There was no systematic discussion of what speciesism is, how it can be connected to psychology, and how we might use psychology to understand this concept of speciesism that philosophers have introduced. And that was the first thing. And what we found was that there are quite substantial correlations between speciesism and other types of prejudice. And that's the focus of this, this newer paper that I've worked on, in which I look at how we perceive those who are speciesist. Yeah, right. It's, it's quite interesting. And I think looking into human psyche might be also the remedy for this discriminative behaviors because if we can find the pattern maybe we can find the solution for it right yes there's clearly a difference between understanding the theory and knowing the intervention in that just because we understand something it doesn't mean that we have the necessary tools or motivation or capacity to strongly change that we can see that in many forms of discrimination. Even if people are aware that systemic racism is a problem, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to dismantle it. But I do think it's critically important for us to understand the psychological underpinnings, because if we don't, then it, we're going to find it harder to develop psychologically meaningful interventions. Hmm. Can you talk to me about the psychological processes underlying these prejudices? Yeah, so the term speciesism by philosophers was, was termed speciesism specifically to draw a parallel with these other forms of discrimination like racism, sexism, ableism. And one of the really interesting things about prejudice is that it tends to go together. So there's a really reliable finding that if someone is more prejudiced in one way, they tend to be more prejudiced in a different way. So someone that's sexist typically has more racist attitudes. Someone that is hostile to one ethnic or religious group tends to be hostile to another. Someone who's more sexist and holds more traditional sexist gender roles tends to be more homophobic. And this sort of connection between the prejudices has long been studied. And psychologists have tried to understand why that is. 
And one of the things that they've drawn on is this concept of social dominance orientation and the idea that the reason prejudices tend to go together is that these different prejudices are manifestations or consequences of different underlying ideologies to do with things about social dominance and authoritarianism. Mm. And this, so the idea is that people vary in these individual differences and that these kind of legitimizing myths about the need for dominance in society and the idea that there are always going to be some groups that are better than others or some groups higher in the social status than others. That is one of the things that seems to explain why someone that's racist is also more likely to be sexist. And so what we were really interested in, and a model that's really also been developed by my colleague Christoph Dom, is this idea that maybe that social dominance, maybe these similar underlying processes are also explaining speciesism, because speciesism is also associated with racism sexism, ableism. So one way of doing that, which we did in the first paper and the approach that Christoph and Don and, and other people have done, is to look at the correlations or the association between these different variables. So the idea is that you measure someone's uh, prejudice towards different groups and you measure their endorsement of questions relating to social dominance and authoritarianism and political conservatism and then you measure their speciesism or their attitudes towards animals and what we can see is that there's typically a strong correlation and you can do some mediation statistical analyses to try and show that the reason that there's this correlation is that it's it's statistically going through this pathway of social dominance attitudes so that's one way of showing it we wanted to take a slightly different approach to look at whether participants are intuitively aware of this connection. And so that's what we've been doing in the more recent work looking on perceptions. Because of course, very few people will say that speciesism is similar to racism, sexism or homophobia. Many people act in clearly speciesist ways even when they publicly espouse a commitment to anti-racism, anti-homophobia, anti-sexism, and so on. Because speciesism is much more accepted in modern society than the other prejudices are, even if, as we can see, tragic current events are showing that racism, homophobia, trans-exclusionary attitudes are still very much a large problem in society. So, we wanted to look at whether people are perceiving a speciesist in this same way. So really, do people perceive, do, do people expect a speciesist to also be more racist and vice versa? That is, we know that philosophers have said that there's a connection and we know that there's a psychological connection so that people who are more likely to be speciesist are also more likely to be sexist or racist or homophobic but do participants intuit that by expecting a speciesist to be more racist and expecting a racist to be more speciesist? And so that's what we studied. And what we really found was that there was this really strong connection. So there were almost no differences across all the outcome measures that we looked at based on whether this person was described as being a racist, a sexist or a homophobe. 
So what we did was we had participants, we said that they're going to be interacting with someone else. And we gave participants this image showing how the other person scored on these prejudice measures that are widely used in psychology. So we showed the, that the other person either answered very strongly and they agreed with these prejudice statements or that they didn't. And then we had participants rate how warm do you think this person is? How moral do you think they are? How conservative do you think they are? How religious? How, how socially dominant do you think they would be? How much do you think that they would support kind of group-based inequalities? How likely do you think it would be that they support uh, liberation movements like anti-racism, anti-sexism movements? And so what we found is that regardless of whether this person was presented as being racist, sexist, or speciesist, or homophobic, the same outcomes were seen. So the prejudiced person was always seen as less moral, less warm, less competent, they were rated as less suitable social partners. They were expected to be more conservative. They were expected to be higher in social dominance. And they were expected to be unsupportive of liberation or anti-prejudice movements. So this really suggests that people are aware, at least in some form, of the psychological connection between racism, sexism and speciesism. Mm, there is there's a lot to take in <laughs> mm. and it seems to me we can also see a herd psychology because i mean there was slavery in the past and that was the so normal you know that was the kind of a social norm and now it's not something acceptable you know yeah and many people have said that just now as we look back at the horrors of slavery and astounded really that our not so distant ancestors believed that that was morally acceptable and acted in that way. Many people have suggested that in a hundred years, say, we're going to look back at the way that we treat animals now with factory farming, meat eating, zoos, and we're going to look back and think the same, that it's morally abhorrent and there'll be shock and outrage that we even thought that it was morally acceptable to treat animals in this way yeah hopefully i mean if we still have healthy planet until then yeah. <laughs> yeah. yes. in your paper you also wrote that the studies show that we believe that some animals are less morally important than humans and that some species of non-human animals are more important than others We fail to feel empathy for certain kinds of animals and we act in harmful ways towards some animals that we would never countenance towards humans or other species of animals. I want to know why. Where does this prejudice come from? Why can't we feel empathy and why does it lead us to cause harm? So that's a really interesting question. And... I cannot fully answer that. I don't think that we know enough yet really about the psychology of speciesism. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. I would say that there are two broad approaches we could take here to where does this prejudice, where does this speciesist prejudice come from? Now, one answer could be, and this is sort of, as I talked about before, with social dominance. And the, the idea could be that this prejudice for um, against animals 
is really resulting from social dominance and it's the same underlying causes um, that are individual differences that are associated with societal myths about hierarchies and, and groups. And that is why we feel prejudiced towards animals. Another option, another possibility, is that our prejudice towards animals is actually the basis for our prejudice towards humans. So one um, thing that is sadly all too common is this idea of dehumanization. So this is the psychological process in which people are seen as less human and therefore not fully worthy of moral concern. This is a very important part of traditional intergroup conflict. We see it in uh, Rwandan genocide, in the Holocaust. We see it in racist and sexist and, and, and slurs. We see it when black people are referred to as apes or Jews as rats and women as bitches. These words work because they strip the victims of moral worth because it's assumed that actual apes, rats and dogs, don't have moral consideration. We dehumanize by making them seem more like animals. And so there's this very interesting model that's called the interspecies model of prejudice. And this is work by uh, Costello and Hodgson. And they're arguing that actually, partly the reason that we're prejudiced towards animals is that it enables us to justify dehumanizing behavior and facilitating prejudice towards certain humans. That is, if humans are not better than animals, then we can't be discriminating against certain groups and denigrating them by comparing them to animals. So I think that, yeah, there are, there are a few different things going on here of where this prejudice is coming from. And I'm really excited about all this amazing new research that has been coming out, is continuing to come out to explore this. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting, hey? <laughs> it seems that it must be more than knowing intellectually that something is wrong or harmful. For example, many people know, think that racism or sexism is wrong and we know it is harmful, but it still exists and we haven't overcome it. Why is there still that gap? That is a very interesting and difficult question. I think there are a few things here. One thing is that With speciesism, many people don't believe that it's wrong. With racism, most people agree that racism is wrong, although they disagree with what counts as racism, which arguably amounts to the same thing. But one thing is that many people don't think speciesism is wrong. They don't see there being a moral issue or concern with eating meat, with going to zoos, with doing all of these things that support and perpetuate animals being in subordinate positions. So one thing is that just with speciesism, many people don't think it's wrong. But even if they do sort of think it's wrong, I think it's very tricky in the, the social norms, the culture that we live in is still incredibly speciesist. In the same way, that it would be much, it would be incredibly difficult for someone who personally believes that racism is wrong to 
fully act in an anti-racist manner if they were living in segregated 60s in, in the US because the social norms and the system is set up in a fundamentally racist way. And I think it's the same thing that will happen here with speciesism, is that even if people are aware that their actions are speciesist, even if they're aware that it's wrong, when we live in a structurally specious, prejudiced society, it's difficult for people to be able to overcome that. There's a lot of structural barriers yeah. to, to it. Yeah, totally agreed. And I think there's also out of sight, out of mind, mindset. I mean, yeah. when we go to markets, we see that milk bottles, really happy cows, so, you know, like other yeah. things. And I remember the first time I watched a documentary about the reality of factory farms. I wasn't, I was terrified. It was quite shocking. Media and culture, as you said, it play really important role in this. Absolutely. And we see that with other types of prejudice and, and conflict throughout history. It's argued that many people in Germany knew, at least they had some knowledge or they could have been aware of the concentration camps but they chose to look the other way or they chose to close their eyes because it's much easier for us to not fully open our eyes and see the damage that's being done. Yeah. All these discriminative behaviors lead to suffering in many ways, for sure. Yeah. In your study, you make attitudinal and ideological generalizations. Can you tell us what those are? Is there a parallel? I mean, you mentioned, but I'd like to hear more about it. So in the paper, what we're referring to there is just, we were interested in whether people generalize from the knowledge of one type of prejudicial belief to the other. So, and, and what we find is that if someone is described as having racist beliefs or, or a prejudiced outlook, then people seem to generalize that in assuming that they're prejudiced towards other groups of people as well. Now, we didn't measure discriminative behavior. So we have not looked at whether people expect a generalization from racist behavior to speciesist or sexist behavior. I think here the link might be a little bit weaker And I think that goes back to the issue I said with us living in a fundamentally specious society to a, a greater degree, perhaps, than we live in a structurally racist society, even though we obviously live in a deeply racist society too. So I'm not sure, for example, that if you describe someone as eating meat, people would assume would generalize that to assume that they also engage in racist or sexist behavior but i do think that what we we do find this when it comes to the underlying attitudes yeah when you think about it they are actually a type of expression of dominance is there a moral framework that allows us to step beyond the harm of discriminatory behaviors How can we break with all the isms? So, again, that's a very interesting and, and tricky question. One 
one possibility would be utilitarianism, which ironically might help us break with the other isms. So Peter Singer, who wrote Animal Liberation, who's one of the popularizers and, and main people associated with the animal liberation speciesist movement, he's also the most famous living utilitarian philosopher. And utilitarianism is a, is a philosophy that developed by Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And the idea is that all that matters is, is happiness and suffering. And it doesn't matter who is feeling that, what kind of person, what race or what species. It doesn't matter whether we have to break certain normal moral rules to achieve that good outcome. But the, all that matters is maximizing happiness, the greatest good for the greatest number. And this utilitarian philosophy has been the grounds for a lot of the speciesist work. And indeed, when you look back to the original utilitarian thinkers, they were advocating for women's rights, for animal rights, um, against the criminalization of homosexuality. And a time when, you know, homosexuals were still being imprisoned or killed, women didn't have any legal rights, really. And the RSPCA or the, the, the protection of animals was, was far off. And so I think there's an argument that can be made that utilitarianism is one of the frameworks that can help us step beyond this discriminatory behaviors, including speciesism. Hmm. Interesting one. On the other hand, if we think utilitarianism because it, it advocates the greatest pleasure for the greatest number, then eating meat gives that pleasure, then would that stop it? I don't know. <laughs> I think the argument would be that the small amount of pleasure that can be obtained from eating meat does not outweigh the massive harm that is caused to obtain that meat. So both in the number of animals that we have to kill, it doesn't justify the number of animals we have to kill, you know, the, the massive intense suffering that the animals have to go through, mm -hmm. but also the suffering associated with the human workers that have to work in those conditions. Yeah, right. This is like the trolley dilemma. <laughs> it just reminded me yeah. of. <laughs> the utilitarian idea is that, you, you know, it really, the harms, the, the benefit of eating meat and that being nice is very very much outweighed by the massive harm an alternative framework it could be more of a deontological or right based framework which says that animals just have some kind of limited rights not human rights obviously but they have rights and one of those rights for example would be that they have a right not to be eaten by us hmm. and so just as we have certain human rights, we could adopt a deontological approach to suggest that animals have some rights. Yeah, right. Hmm. Raising awareness and talking about these issues is necessary, but they're not sufficient. They need to be followed by meaningful action. What needs to be done to create lasting positive change in our society, in your opinion? 
Well, yeah, I would very much preface this with being my opinion. There are groups and organizations that are really focused on animal welfare and animal rights. We, we see now with the Black Lives Matter protests and movement, movements that are committed to achieving positive change in society relating to race. And so I would always suggest that we talk to those people first. You have more of the knowledge and expertise. In general, my impression is that what's going to be most important is the kind of structural changes that we're talking about now with this defund the police and things like that, because it's very difficult for people to be consistently anti-prejudiced in a deeply structurally prejudiced, racist, sexist, speciesist society. And I think one of the easiest, maybe not easiest, but one of the best things that we can do to reduce speciesism is to partly raise awareness, but also increase these options, increase the visibility of vegan, vegetarian restaurants, increase the availability in the supermarkets as people go out, make it easier for people to be anti-speciesist, make it easier for people to be anti-racist, because the easier it is, the more people will do it. I have somewhat little faith in the ability for people's stated moral concerns to consistently over time lead to them acting or performing behaviors that will create the positive change that we need. I think the better way is to change top down, to change the systems. People will shift their attitudes in line with that and it will become much easier. Yeah. Jim, I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge with me, with us. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For this episode, I'd like to say special thanks to Bonnie Paris for editing the script and Chris Fortes for his technical support. I'm Denise Zildes and thanks for listening.